Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we can trust in Jesus, that we can rest in Jesus, that we can trust in the Holy Spirit in your presence with us, that we can rest in that work that is accomplished, that we are yours, that our hope is certain, our joy is certain, our peace and rest are certain, and that no matter what we face, no matter what we experience in this life, um, that trust need not waver. And we can always look to you. And I pray that as we open your word now, we would be drawn to look again and afresh at Jesus Christ uh, for the sake of our trust and our delight and for the sake of his glory, which he deserves from us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23. Now, youth, we're, we're opening a passage. We're going to start with our context, right? As we've been exploring 1 Samuel as a book, we've seen what's the main thrust of the book. It's been to lift up David, the anointed king of God's people, that Messiah, small m Messiah, chosen by God to deliver Israel. And 1 Samuel particularly lifts up David by contrasting him with Saul. We're watching Saul fall and David rise. We're watching as God demonstrates the superiority of his chosen anointed king over a king who we would choose for ourselves, who represents the fulfillment of our human desires. In our passage this morning, this contrast between David and Saul comes into stark focus. We find David still on the run. And let's read all of 1 Samuel 23 and 24 together. Now they told David, Behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord again, and the Lord answered him, Arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought away their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiathar, the son of Ahimelech, had fled to David, to Keilah, he had come down with an ephod in his hand. Now it was told Saul that David had come to Keilah, and Saul said, God has given him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. And Saul summoned all the people to war, to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. David knew that Saul was plotting harm against him, and he said to Abiathar the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord, the God of Israel, your servant has surely heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city on my account. Will the men of Keilah surrender me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, the God of Israel, please tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, will the men of Keilah surrender me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, they will surrender you. 
Then David and his men, who were about 600, arose and departed from Keilah, and they went wherever they could go. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he gave up the expedition, and David remained in the strongholds in the wilderness, in the hill country of the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh, and Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall sit next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh, and Jonathan went home. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horesh? on the hill of Hakaliah, which is south of Jeshimon. Now come down, O king, according to all your heart's desire to come down, and our part shall be to surrender him into the king's hand. And Saul said, May you be blessed by the Lord, for you have had compassion on me. Go, make yet more sure. Know and see the place where his foot is, and who has seen him there, for it is told me that he is very cunning." See, therefore, and take note of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with sure information. Then I will go with you. And if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And they arose and went to Ziph ahead of Saul. Now David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the Areba, south of Jeshimon. And Saul and his men went to seek him. And David was told, so he went down to the rock and lived in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. Saul went on one side of the mountain, and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. And David was hurrying to get away from Saul. As Saul and his men were closing in on David and his men to capture them, a messenger came to Saul, saying, Hurry and come, for the Philistines have made a raid against the land. So Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, the place was called the Rock of Escape, and David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wilderness, wild goats, rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him. Because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against the, my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. 
See my father? See the corner of your robe in my hand? For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is that your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Through the episodes in this passage, David saving Keilah, David meeting Jonathan, David being betrayed by the Ziphites, we are watching this clear contrast build between David and Saul, which builds up to this confrontation where David spares the life of Saul, the life of the man who has been doing everything he can to kill David. I want to look at four particular ways that David is distinguished in this passage shown to be God's anointed, his good choice of king, particularly when compared with Saul. Our first point is this. David works deliverance for God's people when he is offered only persecution. Through this passage, we repeatedly watch David return righteousness for sin, kindness for suffering, even offering deliverance to those who offer him only persecution. We see this first when David hears that the city of Keilah is being attacked by the Philistines. He inquires of God, and he goes to deliver them. And it is right to ask, whose job is it to deliver the city of Keilah? Who should be doing that work? Clearly Saul. Clearly the current king. But what is Saul doing? He's got the whole army occupied trying to destroy the man anointed to be king after him. So it's David, not yet the king, while he's on the run from Saul who goes and delivers Keilah. And when he's there, God tells him that the men of Keilah will turn him over to Saul. Now likely they were afraid of what, that what, would happen, uh, what had happened at Nob would happen to them when Saul killed the priest, destroyed the whole town just for helping David. So at Keilah, we see David offering deliverance even to those who would not stand with him, those who for their own sake would betray him and participate in his persecution. 
We already saw last week that David, through this time in the wilderness, is establishing himself as the protector and the deliverer of God's people, even in exile. In the cave of Adullam, it says everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was in bitter in soul gathered to David. This pattern continues in the passage we read this week. He delivers Keilah. He offers protection to Abiathar the priest on the run from Saul. David is doing the work of Israel's Messiah, the anointed king, while Saul is not just shirking that role, but openly subverting it. Saul's anointing was to save the people and to judge them justly, and he is killing priests and preoccupying the army with fighting against their own people. Saul is enjoying the benefits of kingship while contradicting its responsibilities. Meanwhile, David is taking up the responsibilities of kingship while being treated as a traitor. This contrast between David and Saul reaches a climax when Saul walks right into David's hands and David spares him. Saul, David's chief persecutor, himself receives David's deliverance. And in their discussion that follows, David is clearly shown to all God's people to be a righteous deliverer. And Saul is publicly embarrassed for the wick his wickedness for everyone to see. For a brief moment, even Saul sees it. He says to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. God demonstrates through this confrontation the superiority of his choice of king. The one who returns righteousness for wickedness and deliverance for persecution. God exposes our sin in Saul and then shows us how the good Messiah David offers his deliverance even to the worst sinner, even to his own persecutor. Here God also sets the stage for us to recognize when David's greater descendant comes. The Messiah himself who returned righteousness for sin, love for hate, even deliverance for those who persecuted him. In fact, Jesus willingly underwent his persecutions even unto death so that his pain might be the means of deliverance even for his persecutors. Paul says in Romans 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' greatness and goodness as the Messiah was magnified in his suffering and dying for those who had sinned against him, even you and I. Just as David showed his worthiness to be God's anointed king by carrying out his messianic role in the midst of persecution, Jesus demonstrated his worthiness as the Messiah by delivering us through his persecution. I would say that that is our main point this morning. Youth, that is the meaning of our passage. The main way that David is set apart and contrasted with Saul. While Saul the king persecutes David and his own people betray him, David offers deliverance even to his persecutors. 
But why was David able to return deliverance for persecution? Why was he so ready to offer righteousness in return for wickedness? Certainly, you could simply say David is clearly a more righteous man than Saul. That's true. But our passage gives us a particular look at the heart of David and his motivations, the heart of the righteous Messiah, why he readily served and saved God's people in the midst of his own suffering. So for the next three points, youth, we're going to be doing our observation and application. Our next three points are going to look at David's heart through this passage. Our second point this morning is this. David entrusted himself to God's will. David willingly endured suffering and persecution and was able to return righteousness and salvation to God's people because David trusted both in God's righteous wisdom and in his sovereign providence over his creation. David was not righteous simply because he believed you got to do the right thing no matter the consequences. He wasn't a stoic who walked into things gritting his teeth, I'm going to do what I have to do. David entrusted himself to be obedient to God's will, and he knew that God would work everything according to his own glory, his own ends, and even the good of David, his anointed one. Even while all the people seemed to be against David, while things just seemed to get worse and worse and worse, David delivers God's people because God has willed that he do so. When David plans to deliver Keilah, his men are afraid to go with him. And it's very easy to appreciate the fear of David's men. They are already on the run from Saul. They've already made this brave and costly choice that no one else is willing to make to be identified with David. They've already made that amazing, righteous choice. Why would they add to their dangers unnecessarily by going and exposing themselves to Saul and making enemies out of the Philistines in Keilah? By any human logic, it seems like these poor men should feel no moral obligation to go and get entangled in more danger in Keilah. David goes because he has sought the will of the Lord and God wants him to go. And then he does it a second time so his men can see it. David doesn't tell them in some rousing speech to buck up to be men of upstanding character. But they've got a moral obligation. David says, God wills that we go. And he wants that to be the motivation of his men, just as it's his motivation. In trusting God to direct his steps, David also trusts that God will keep and deliver him. And you see that God does this. God warns him that Saul's coming when he's in Keilah, but the men will turn him over, and David leaves again. After David flees Keilah, he meets Jonathan in the wilderness. And our passage says Jonathan strengthened his hand in God. Jonathan's main encouragement to David is to strengthen his resolve to trust and act in the will of God. This is the encouragement David wants and needs to make sure that in the stress and in the suffering that he never looks back to his own will and his own wisdom, but remains resolute in doing the work that God has given for him to do. And we see that God continues to deliver David. 
In chapter 23, 14, Saul sought him every day, but God did not give him into his hand. And then when David seems cornered, when all the Ziphites betray him, when Saul is closing in, a Philistine invasion at the last moment forces Saul to give up the chase again. And it is called the rock of escape. David's willingness to entrust himself to the will of God is best seen in the final confrontation with Saul in chapter 24. David and his men are hiding in a cave, and Saul walks in on a silver platter, alone, unaware, and vulnerable. David's men are sure, they are absolutely sure, that it is God's will right now that David kills Saul. To them, these events seem so perfectly and providentially arranged. Their sense of justice for David's sake is so strong. Their desire to kill this disgustingly wicked man who has contravened every responsibility of his anointing to become their enemy is so strong that it is impossible for them to imagine that God wants anything other than for David to kill Saul. And yet... David knows that it would be against God's will for him to do so. And in this case, it's not because David inquires of the Lord and gets new insight from God. It is because of the wisdom from God that David already knows and trusts in, that he could not deny. David knows God's law. Exodus says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. David also recognizes the significance of the Lord's anointing on Saul. We're going to see that in our next point. And he repents even of cutting off a piece of Saul's robe, of the disrespect that that would imply. If David's men were right about something here, it's that God had clearly orchestrated these events for David's sake, but not so he could kill Saul but so that by sparing him, he could demonstrate his superiority over Saul as God's anointed king, his deliverer, his Messiah. Once again, David entrusting himself to God's will works to the glory of God and to the greater good of David, his anointed one. David's understanding of God's will can be directly contrasted with Saul's. Just before David spares Saul's life, right before we are meant to watch as Saul also gets an opportunity to kill David, not even as good an opportunity, one he sees as good. He knows, like David knew, that the one that he has a chance to kill is the Lord's anointed, because you'll remember, Jonathan has said, Saul knows you're going to be king. Saul knows God has anointed David, just as David knows that Saul is currently the anointed one. But Saul makes the same wrong assumption as David's men. Events seem too perfectly aligned for him. They're so aligned for me to get what I want that he can only imagine that God's will for him is to get what he desires. He says, God has given him into my hand. So when David spares Saul's life, we are meant to recognize that he has succeeded exactly where Saul has failed. While David regularly foregoes doing what seems opportune for himself because he trusts in God's better plan, Saul increasingly struggles to disentangle his view of God's will from what he thinks is most opportune for himself. He's sure God wants him to kill David and Keilah. He invokes a blessing on those Ziphites who tell him to go do what he wants to kill David if that's what he'd enjoy. 
What began in earlier chapters in 1 Samuel as disobedience to God's command is slowly digressing into an absolute inability to even grasp what God would want. This is the progress of sin where disobedience becomes an absolute lack of understanding what is good or what God would desire. It's only when David so clearly demonstrates his righteousness over Saul that Saul, even for a moment, recognizes how wicked he has become. And he does not repent. He does not change. Even if he grieves, his grief cannot draw him back to follow God's will rather than his own. Friends, for us, it is so easy to fall into the same trap as David's men did. They knew that it was right to follow God. It was right to follow David. They had made good choices. They were on the right side of the battle. They had been obedient to God. They were even suffering for it. And so it was so hard for them when a clear opportunity was provided to kill Saul and end their suffering, to think that that could not be God's will for them. It was so hard for them to imagine that God's will would be anything other than relieving their present persecution. They even tried to find words from God that could justify their belief that they wanted what God wanted. They tell David, here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. The temptation is always strong, but it is particularly strong when we're suffering or hurting to justify our own desires by calling them the will of God. Instead of letting what God has already revealed in his word shape our desires, our desires shape what we tell ourselves God must want. We might even do what David's men do. Go to God's word after we have decided what to do and find a verse or a passage that puts words into God's mouth or reconstrues the meaning of God's words to justify what we have already decided is good. The danger in doing that is that once we think we've found words from God that prove what we want, we make it hard for people to correct us. We shut down disagreement and debate. We must be ready. Even when we think we have found scriptural justification for what we want, we must be ready to allow others to point out that what we desire is not actually in accord with what God's word says. That even the justification we thought we had found was taken out of context. It was good that David disagreed with his men. It was good that even after they tried to quote God to justify their position, David discerned from what he already knew from God's word and God's will that it would be wrong to agree with his men and kill Saul, even if that's what was best for himself, or seemed best. If we can be warned by David's men, we should be all the more warned in the case of Saul, who was justifying absolute wickedness as God's will. Because he was so consumed, not just by desire, but by self-pity. 
so consumed with what he wanted to the exclusion of everyone else, so consumed with his desire that he could not see anyone else's will or even the will of God through his picture of himself. Increasingly, Christians are seeking out churches or abandoning church altogether so they can find a home where they are invited to use scripture or even create or find new words from God to justify the demands that they have already made of God, the things they want for themselves that they will not compromise. There is currently a rapidly growing movement of prophecy in the church, and I have seen And I expect many of you have seen that one of the reasons this movement is growing so quickly is that men and women figured out very quickly that they can take their desires and once they claim that God gave them a word or a sign to justify what they wanted, no one is allowed to argue with them. God told me. God gave me a calling, gave me a new meaning of this verse by applying it to my specific situation. When they say God gave them a word, a sign in nature, even a nudge, then it seems sinful to disagree with them because they've turned it into disagreeing with God. Christians, families, entire churches are often led by supposed prophetic words or prophetic giftings of words, which in many cases clearly contradict God's will in the scriptures. So it must be our goal as Christians in the church and as a church to have all of our thoughts and intentions and plans shaped by the will of God and the word of God, which we can only do with the help and discernment of our brothers and sisters who also love God's revealed will. Because to follow God's will will not always be what appears most opportune for us. It will be a struggle, at many times a great struggle, to trust God's will rather than our own. This is one of the main reasons we need our brothers and sisters to correct our self-motivated interpretations of what God has said. And we all fall into those moments. But like David, we can trust that when we humbly submit to what God wants for us, rather than what we wish he wanted for us, we will receive better from him. Because what works for his glory and his good, and works for the good of his anointed, will also work for the good of the Messiah's people. We can expect greater eternal blessings from God than any of the fleeting joys in this world because we have a Messiah who himself entrusted himself completely to God's will, even when it meant his suffering and death. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he was constantly offered this opportunity to use his right as God's son and his power as God's son to do what would be easiest for him in the moment. The devil comes and tempts him. If you are God's son, make bread. If you are God's son, throw yourself off the temple and be caught. Let everyone see how amazing you are. Even Peter, when he first hears of what God's plan is for the Messiah, where the Messiah plans to go, says, that's not going to happen. Later in Gethsemane, when Peter takes out his sword, he wants to fight. Jesus says, 
Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? That is what Jesus could have done to his enemies instead of going to the cross. That is what he could have done. And even on the cross, they taunted him. If you are God's son, come down from the cross. Could he not have done so? Jesus had a better case than anyone to argue that it must be God's will for him not to suffer. He was God's perfect son. More than anyone, he could have argued that his suffering should end and his enemies should be eradicated, and he could have done it. So why face all of that temptation? Why in the face of it did he willingly go to the cross? Because he came to do his father's will. He entrusted himself to God just like David did. As Peter tells us, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. Jesus trusted, just as David trusted, that God's righteous will would lead to greater ends than what seemed most beneficial in the moment. Hebrews tells us he endured the cross for the joy set before him. Jesus saw the road that God had laid for him beyond the cross, the resurrection and the rule and the reign for all eternity. He saw it. Just like David trusted that God's hard road for him would lead to the throne of Israel. So that's our second point this morning. The Messiah entrusted himself to God's will. Our third point is this. David honored the messianic office. We see this in the reason that David gives for sparing Saul's life when he could have killed him. Even though Saul has utterly failed in his work as the anointed king, even though he has subverted his responsibilities and betrayed his office, David recognizes that Saul still holds an appointment he received from God. Saul is still in the office of anointed king of Israel. It is because David respects that anointing that he will not harm Saul. David says to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing as he is the Lord's anointed. He happily tells Saul, that is the reason I am not going to kill you, that Saul is the Lord's anointed. David's confidence that he himself will one day be king is not in his own military might or prowess or cunning or even in his own righteousness. The only reason David will one day be king is that God anointed him for the position. If David had not respected that anointing when it was on Saul, he would have undermined his own credibility to assume the throne after Saul. By honoring Saul's anointing, David also honors his own. Saul, by contrast, no longer sees his kingship as resting on God's anointing. That's clearly true because he knows that David's anointed and he'd rather kill him than have him take the throne. Saul doesn't care about anointing as a right to kingship. He wants to kill David because God's chosen him as the next king. So Saul thus no longer recognizes his own claim to the throne as being God's anointing. Rather, his claim is his own desire to rule and his ability to do so. And so David has more respect for Saul's anointed kingship than Saul does, even as David recognizes that Saul's actions are wicked. However, even while David respects that Saul is the one currently anointed as king, even though he knows that Saul is in the position, 
David is still willing to carry out much of the messianic work that Saul should have been doing. While Saul holds the anointed office and spurns his duty, David willingly undertakes the duty of the Messiah while he holds no official office. Likewise, Jesus was committed to his messianic office. He honored God's anointing even when it did not profit him. Before he enjoyed his heavenly throne, he was still committed to carrying out a messianic ministry that God had given to him. Jesus knew from the scriptures He taught on the road to Emmaus from the scriptures that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and enter into his glory. See that Jesus Jesus knew the road to kingship. It was suffering and then glory. In that order, both were essential. Jesus' respect for his messianic reign from a heavenly throne was not separate from his respect for his messianic office when it meant suffering and dying. Just as David was willing to spare Saul, who would continue to try and kill him because David honored God's anointing, Jesus honored God's anointing even unto his own death. That then's our third point, that the Messiah honored God's anointing for the Messianic office. The final thing I want to note that set David apart, that sets apart God's anointed Messiah, is that David trusted in God for his vindication. So we already saw that David was able to offer deliverance in return for persecution because he entrusted himself to God's will. A big part of that will that David understood and trusted in, that providential plan that David hoped in, was that God would vindicate him, both by setting him on a throne and by punishing those who had wickedly sinned as his enemies. David's respect for Saul's anointing as king clearly did not make him blind to how Saul had abused that position. He knows that Saul has sinfully subverted his role as king by persecuting David. Yet while David recognizes that it would be wicked for him to kill Saul, he tells Saul that he expects God to judge between them and punish Saul, even punish Saul for how he has sinned against David. He says, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And again, he says, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David is able to spare Saul's life because he knows that God will judge between them. That God will not only lift up David for his righteousness, but that God will punish Saul. This was also David's response to the betrayal of the Ziphites. We see that response in Psalm 54. I'm going to read that if you want to turn with me. Psalm 54. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites went and told Saul, is not David hiding among us? O God, save me by your name and vindicate me by your might. O God, hear my prayer, give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen against me, ruthless men seek my life. 
They do not set God before themselves. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. He will return evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. With a freewill offering, I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph on my enemies. So not only in the case of Saul, but in the case of every enemy of David, David so trusts in God's character and wisdom so that he rests and hopes not only in the fact that God will righteously keep and uphold him, but that he will deliver David from his enemies and punish them for their sins against him. He says, he will return the evil to my enemies. In your faithfulness, put an end to them. In your faithfulness. David is confident that God will punish the Ziphites because God is faithful. He is faithful to his own character and justice. He will clearly punish the wicked just as he is faithful to his own promise that he will vindicate the righteous and the justified. This is a challenging topic for us, particularly in our current Christian climate. We know that even in many churches, it has become increasingly uncomfortable to talk about sin, increasingly comfortable, uncomfortable to talk about God's punishment for sin of wrath in hell. The gospel itself is twisted and distorted as we try and remove God's hatred for sin and his goodness in promising to respond to it with perfect justice. Of course, when we lose this, we lose the sweet grace of Jesus Christ in taking that punishment for us on the cross. But just as we cannot understand the cross unless we understand the judgment of God, we cannot understand our future Christian hope if we do not understand that that day will be a day of justice. David did not let his men kill Saul because he trusted that God with perfect justice and timing, more perfect than David, would vindicate David in the future. Likewise, we hope for vindication, not primarily for our own sake, but for the sake of our Messiah, Jesus, knowing that that will also be for the good of us, his people. It is our hope, our expectant hope, that he will reign over all things, and that in that day, he will no longer have any enemies. Now, of course, we rejoice that this will in large part be due to the fact that Jesus willingly took the punishment of so many enemies, the punishment that they deserved, so that we who lived as enemies can trust in him and become his people. But for all those whose punishment is not taken by Christ, who continue all their life to rebel against him and will not repent, we recognize that it will be good that they will bear their punishment in hell. That is the day that we wait for. The day when Christ will finally glorify his people and punish his enemies. What this means for us is that even as we look out on a world that is horribly filled with sin and injustice and people who openly slander the name of Jesus, we do not need to see it as our responsibility to retaliate and punish sin. This does not mean we become lax in our view of sin. 
We never become comfortable with it or satisfied that it's just in the world. We hate sin. We hate it in our own hearts. Just as we desire to see ourselves sanctified, we desire to see sin removed from all the world. But we recognize that sin cannot ultimately be dealt with until Jesus comes and deals with it. Like David, we endure sin with hope and expectation in the will and the plan of God, knowing that his plan is to work all things for the vindication of the name of Jesus. And so, as our brother Cal prayed, we say, come, Lord Jesus, and come soon. Come not only to deliver your people, but to work justice for the sake of your name. And that means now that we do not bear the burden of trying to work retribution for sin. In our own flawed judgment, we will fail to carry out God's justice rightly. Even the governments to whom God has entrusted the sword show their limitations to do so. Jesus taught us how to respond to this world's antagonism towards God and his people now. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. That is what we do in hope of that return of Jesus. The reason that Jesus tarries in bringing this justice is that there are more people who he desires to turn from enemies before that day. Turn from being enemies to recognize that Jesus took their punishment to put their trust in him so that on that final day, Jesus will be vindicated in them by them glorifying his name for saving them, for turning them from being enemies to saints. We desire now to see more people renounce being Jesus' enemies and glorifying him just as we did. We ourselves deserved to be among those crushed under his feet. It would have been good if we were numbered among those Jesus was vindicated against on the last day by giving us the punishment that we deserved. And yet, he bore the full wrath of that punishment for sin so that on the day when there are no enemies of Jesus left standing, we will be among those who said we were enemies. But Jesus died for us to make us children of God. How sweet is the grace of our Savior. Let us all the more seek to proclaim his good news. The good news of his death and resurrection and of his return, his coming at glory to all the world to see more enemies of God become children. And let us eagerly wait for the day when the Messiah who offered deliverance to his persecutors will be fully vindicated and reign forever as the anointed king over God's people for all eternity over all creation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for David. I thank you for that righteous king that you anointed and raised up to lead your people. I thank you that as we read about him now, we rejoice not only in the plan that you worked for your people then, but in how that pointed to the sweet Messiah that we have now in Jesus Christ. I thank you that Jesus was obedient to your will unto death, 
that he trusted in the messianic office that you had given him unto the grave and then in his resurrection unto a throne. And I thank you, Father, that he is coming again, that he will be vindicated, that he will punish his enemies, under his, crush them under his feet, but that he also will have so many enemies who praise his name because he bore your wrath that we might be called children of God. I pray if that is not true for someone here, if they are still on the road to being justly punished by Jesus, they, they would repent of their sin, trust in his death and resurrection so that one day they might be one of those who proclaims they were enemies, but God is gracious and good and joins God's people in praising the name of Jesus forever. And for those of us who wait for that day, Father, I pray that it would come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.